Hitchcock is dead to begin with. You're still listening. This is our final transmission. Welcome to the Wasteland, kiddos. It's Final Transmission. Sam Russo here. With me, as always, is Jamie. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Sam. How's it? That was a lot of energy, wasn't it, for the beginning? Uh, how's it Coming going? in hot. It's going good, man. It's going great. I have watched a film that I enjoyed on your uh, recommendation slash order, and I'm ready to talk about it today. What movie is it? It is the Legacy sequel, which is a bone of contention, as we all know. Yeah. It is... Richard Franklin's Psycho 2. Psycho 2. So if you cast your memory back to our Session Zero episode where we were doing our little intros, Jamie expressed some incredibly strong feelings about legacy sequels. So And I stand by them. You stand by them. And is this, perchance, the exception to the rule? or I think this is the exception that proves the rule. <laughs> okay. So this gets a pass, but The Breakfast Club, the high school reunion, does not get apart yeah even in theory the thing about psycho is it isn't the breakfast club that's what everyone's been saying right yeah that's what all the kids are saying <laughs> like the thing about psycho is it's not as good as the breakfast club <laughs> <laughs> like there's there's no speculation it's not like oh i wonder what happens 22 years later when budget cuts mean that norman bates is forced to leave his mental institution like it's it's there's no ambiguity or you don't need to wonder about what happens in the, after that because it's it's a closed book so reopening that book and telling an interesting story i think is a different thing to your bullshit fucking <laughs> breakfast club mutant massacre or whatever it's going to be called it's hilarious because it's the exact same principle you're your whole argument was, as they walk away, the chapter's closed, the story's resolved, we don't need to go back. And never has that been more of a case in point than with Psycho, a genre-defining, genre-starting masterpiece by an auteur director revered globally for closing that particular chapter and uh, never wanting to return. So this is one of the hottest takes in history. I need to hear you tell me why it's allowed. Well... While I agree that the, the, the story in the Breakfast Club has ended, like, obviously there is... I mean, I don't, I don't agree because I'm saying it. I agree with myself, Sam. <laughs> They're kids, and so obviously they have their entire lives ahead of them. That is the point of the Breakfast Club. Sure. But in Psycho, it's not that. So it's, it's, it's a definitive ending. And, then, and therefore, you could only... I, I think... You just proved yourself wrong. <laughs> I think at the crux of it, right, Psycho 2 tells an interesting story right. well. Okay. And that's why it's okay. I think that's why it's okay. With Breakfast Club Mutant Massacre, are you seriously trying to tell me it isn't an interesting story? Well, that's yet to be seen. We'll see. I get it. Okay, so we're opening up the possibility of a Breakfast Club. But it's why... Sequel. It's why Halloween... What was the Halloween legacy sequel called? Uh, which one? Uh, Halloween... The first one. Uh, not ends, not kills. The other one. Yeah. Yeah. Spurts. Halloween spurts. That was it, yeah. 
But yeah, like that gets a pass because it was an interesting story, an interesting take. Okay. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that legacy sequel, doesn't get a pass because it was basically the exact same story as that Halloween, for one. But um But if we're talking we we're talking theoretically, right? So because the Breakfast Club Mutant Massacre High School reunion doesn't exist yet. The principle is just as valid as the principle of a Psycho legacy sequel or a Halloween legacy sequel because all of these movies exist pretty perfectly on their own with fully closed endings and no loose ends. And yet, we're revisiting them. Okay, theoretically, your Breakfast Club sequel Mm -hmm. could be good. Thank you. (laughs) History has taught us that more often than not, it will not be good. Okay. Think about Ghostbusters Afterlife, right? But why doesn't this apply to Psycho? Because it's good. Psycho 2 is good. But imagine you'd never seen it and it didn't exist and you were talking in theory about the existence of that legacy. Well, yeah, it would be Psycho is a sacred cow. How dare you make a sequel? That's why this blows my mind, right? We're, we're fucking the sacred cow. Yeah. we. I mean, we are, again. <laughs> I mean, how how... I always used the sacred to see, donkey. Yeah, exactly. I used to see uh, Psycho 2 on the shelf in the, you know, well, I guess in the video shop, uh, maybe in the waning years of video rentals, DVD rentals. And I used to think, how does that even exist? Surely that's not allowed. And I thought it was like a massive ripoff and they'd got like a double or something for the, you know, for the, for the lead roles because mm. there's, there's a couple of cast members that are in, you know, Psycho 1 that are in Psycho 2. But it turns out this is a, a very valid movie it you know yeah it's great yeah i don't know why i doubted it but uh maybe because it's a legacy sequel and i've been schooled by you to despise them but i mean what what is it about i mean we know we, we know it gets a pass but why how and why did you come across this movie and what makes it a sticker for you and not one that immediately gets binned as legacy sequel trash so i think i might have seen psycho 4 before i saw psycho 2 okay. after i'd seen psycho all of the Psycho sequels are very much in the this is way better than it deserves to be mm-hmm. space. And Psycho 4 is goofy and fun and it's an ageing uh, Anthony Perkins mm. playing an ageing Norman Bates. And it's and it's it just sort of messes with things. The same way that this messes with things. And so, yeah, so I saw that. I thought it was great. And so I thought, hey, maybe Psycho 2 is also great. And it turns out that is the correct assumption. So you had an open mind about it. You went in thinking this could be a ripper. Yeah, well, I think my issue with legacy sequels, I think, is is a relatively recent thing. Mm. Because the legacy sequels that are getting made today feel like lazy cash grabs mm, for sure and i mean this could absolutely have been a lazy cash grab it was the 80s for fuck's sake yeah but it but it isn't you get a director a writer cinematographer and a star that all want to make the best movie that they can make with the with the name psycho 2 and they absolutely nail it yeah i think that's a that's a really key point everyone's pointed in the right direction and the same direction with this movie right nobody's showing up saying oh yeah i guess we'll just make this fucking movie and go home everyone's there to to swing for the fences and i think that comes across in almost 
every aspect of the movie. I gotta say, I went in with a little bit of trepidation. I wouldn't say doubt. The only thing that would have made me watch this really is you saying it was good, because I trust your judgment. But I, I've not swerved, but I've just not grabbed this this movie since you know the day I first knew that it existed, which you know would have been a really fucking long time ago. So hmm. knowing that it exists, knowing that it works, what uh, what was your first first impression of the opening scenes of the movie the first time you saw it do you remember how you felt going back into the world of psycho going back to fairvale and the bates motel and all these iconic locales i mean i always felt weird about seeing the seeing the shower scene Mm. in the opening of this movie seeing the the iconic shower scene with that with all of its sort of context stripped away It, it does the thing and i think i think that they do this on purpose i think it's about making you think that you're going to get a specific film okay. that, that you don't get in the end. It makes you think that you're looking at Psycho with just the violence without any of that nuance. Mm-hmm. And that rubbed me up the wrong way to begin with. But I think that this film is, as we've said, all about smashing those expectations. The things that you think that you want out of this film... They're not what you, they're not what you want out of this film by the end of it. The things that you think that you want out of the characters, they're not what you want out of them. The things that you have trained yourself to believe and expect in a in a film like this in in 1983 or in 2023, it blasts all your expectations away. I mean, going back to Fair Fairvale is lovely. Mm-hmm. The house looks amazing. Yeah, there's there's some amazing matte. Uh, paintings uh, with insane lighting and all sorts of great things that look amazing. It's nice to see the diner that's just down the road mm-hmm. that gets mentioned and obviously is quite a plot point here. I love the idea that in the 80s, your guy from NYPD Blue is running the hotel <laughs> like a CD joint. He's in uh, um, Die Hard 2, right? The Yeah. He's the airport cop, like the chief of police at the airport. Or whatever. That's what I know him from. Smashes it. We'll come back to him. Yeah, he is nailing that sleazy CD. He's grease personified. He belongs in that diner on a dish. The guy is pure <laughs> sleaze and we live for it, right? Before we get too into this, let's take a little break. We'll come back. We'll go through a quick synopsis and then we'll dig into Psycho, Psycho 2. 
I think we're back. Holy shit, we're back. You know, what you were just saying, Jamie, is fascinating to me because when that opening scene came up and I was just getting, again, the shower scene on its own, like you said, in isolation, I was thinking to myself, oh, fuck, it is what I thought it was going to be. It is an opportunistic cash grab and it is recycling old stuff and it is just kind of serving this all up to me to swallow down like a hungry fanboy. And I thought, I'm not going to enjoy this. Jamie's got me over a barrel here. And then... It did exactly what Psycho does, which is divert, misdirect, and kind of flip your expectations, which is, you know, famously what that movie did so hard and and so many times throughout that through, throughout the plot. And and you know, this is a movie that's studied in on like every single film studies curriculum syllabus going. So uh, to to just kind of nakedly and brazenly drop that iconic scene as the intro to Psycho Two, I thought was a really really wild move i gotta say same as you don't love it didn't love it still don't really love it having thought about it for a little while uh, especially given what follows but i like it as an act of misdirection i like it keeping yeah. you on your toes bear in mind hitchcock is dead and at this point he's kind of warm in his grave and they're rolling out that scene as the start of the movie wild choice i mean it is a wild choice but like i say i think in the context it makes sense because it's all about I don't want to invoke fucking single camera sitcom community here. Okay, but you're gonna. But you know, do you, I don't know if you watch Community. Is that with uh, Ch- uh, Chevy, Chevy Chase? Chevy Chase. Yeah. yeah. No, because I think I'm gonna really like it, so I'm kind of saving it. Well, I, I won't talk about this then because it might ruin something for you. Hmm. Still tempted though. Is it about Chevy Chase? No. Then I don't mind. I'm only gonna be watching okay, so Chevy. In season four. Right, they have spectacularly fired the showrunner and they've got on these new guys. And th- these new guys have a sort of straight sitcom heritage. Right. Like they come from like the world of straight sitcoms. They're just like laugh track, down the line, all that shit that you hate. Or that you liked in a sitcom in the 90s, but you hate in a sitcom in the 2000s. Sure. And so th- everybody's thinking, everybody's talking on the internet and everything about how they're going to ruin. They're going to ruin community. They're, they're going to change the show and they're going to rip the heart out of it and make it into just another soulless piece of sitcom trash. Right. And season four starts and the cold open is the characters are there. There's a laugh track. It's like someone walks in from a side and there's like a big cheer that goes up and it's like, oh fuck, they've done the thing that we were all talking about. <laughs> and then it's like a dream in a character's head who is like, who, and the character is like, a famous character that's obsessed with TV. And so like that sort of misdirects based on like the the discourse that had been surrounding it. And I think that's what the shower scene is doing here. Mm-hmm. I think that everyone is expecting them to be to be rehashing Psycho, sure. to be pulling out the nasty bits of Psycho and leaving all the interesting bits in the 60s. And so just showing that one scene in isolation. It's like, oh yeah, that's what they're doing. And then the film starts and suddenly there's all this humanity and interest and like weird, insane misdirecting plots that are flying all over the place. That it's like, fuck, turned on its head. You thought we were giving you something. We wanted you to think that. So then when you saw what we were actually giving you, you you wanted it even more. You loved it even more. I think that's very clever. I think that's a really astute read on it because um i mean that first of all that community trick 
is, is that's a straight up prank that sounds fucking excellent that's i'm 100 into that that's a like meta misdirection and you, yeah, yeah. That, that season sucks okay. by the way <laughs> duly noted like it does like it does suck but <laughs> but not for not, but not, not for the reasons you think it's gonna <laughs> exactly <laughs> even cleverer it just gets deeper yeah i think if, if that's what this is doing then man kudos hats off that's that's great and i think i do think it does a lot of quite subtle I mean, the misdirection is is pretty clear, but I think it, it does subtly dig at your expectations as a as a potential cynic viewer, which I think is again pretty finger on the pulse, pretty clever. They must have been yeah. really acutely aware that they were not going to be met with you know as many open minds as in an ideal world you would with a, le- a legacy sequel. And I think that's that's really clever, especially when you bring in color. You know, we got to talk about the choice to make this a color movie. Could they have made it black and white? Are you glad they did it in color? What are your thoughts? I think there is there are people out there in the world that watch this in black and white mm. and find it a much more interesting movie visually as a result. I think it, it never really occurred to me that, oh, it's not in black and white because it's a film from the 80s. Mm. So, I mean, the only film from the 80s that was in black and white and was valid for it was uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Yeah, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. But yeah, I think the colour sometimes makes some of those more insane camera tricks mm. feel a bit more jarring. Yeah, a bit Because more those easy. are tricks that are pulled yeah, straight out of like these older films. Mm. That when you see them in a eighties context, or let's say a seventies context, because I think I feel like this film feels more like a seventies film than an eighties film. It's nineteen eighty three, right? So it's yeah, the 80s are well up and running by the time this movie gets made, and you're right; it feels older. In in, and I mean that in the best possible way. You know, I don't think that holds the movie back. It it feels kind of fusty in all the right ways. It's interesting because there's another legacy sequel that came out a couple of years earlier mm. uh, in 1978, and it is the worst thing you would ever imagine. What is it? It's called "Look What Happened to Rosemary's Baby." <laughs> oh no. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. And it's Rosemary's Baby is an adult now. And that's that's the <laughs> that's movie. It. It's f- fucking terrible. Oh my God. That sounds awful. Yeah. Sounds like, I thought you and were going to say like a look who's talking Rosemary's Baby. Well, no. So it's like the existence of look what happened to Rosemary's Baby mm. helps me because it doesn't make me think Psycho 2 is allowed because it was before I was born. Okay, right, yeah, that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I was worried, I was really thinking about this when I was going through this, making my notes, and I was like, do I just let Psycho 2 and all of the other Psycho sequels, do I just give them a pass because they are, they were films that existed when I created my internal canon? Sure. And the answer is no, because look look what happened to Rosemary's Baby fucking sucks. <laughs> And it is a legacy sequel. It is, and it existed before I was uh, even before conceived. I was born, yeah. and uh, and it sucks. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna watch it. I wouldn't. There's movies where you tell me they suck, and I still watch them. But this isn't one of them. Should we? Should we drop a little Psycho Two synopsis? Yeah, if you can synopsize this, that would be great. I think you're gonna do a better job of it than me. So, hit it, baby. Okay, so Norman Bates is back. He's rehabilitated and he is ready to rejoin society. Or is he? (laughs) So after moving back into the iconic house from the original and taking a job at the nearby diner, uh, people start getting hacked up in that all-too-familiar manner. 
Is Norman up to his old tricks? Spoiler alert. No, he's not. But that's what makes Psycho too good. <laughs> uh, that's an absolutely brilliant synopsis. You're right. Bates is hot and fresh out the bin and not everyone's happy about it. Who are the antagonists in this movie? They rear their ugly heads early. Yeah, so Lila Loomis is set up as the, the primary sort of foil mm. for for Norman Bates, who seems pretty well adjusted. Obviously, she is a holdover from the original. Marries Sam Loomis, who is Jennifer Lee's boyfriend in that movie. Is that right? Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, she's not happy about Normie, Normie getting out. She's got a petition signed by 754 people, Sam. It's quite a lot for a, you know, a small town. I mean, I think the notoriety of the case, I mean, technically what, he killed seven people? Uh, hmm. You would think that would have slightly further reaching uh, levels of notoriety and interest maybe on a, a press level. But she's rustled up 750. I think that's pretty solid. Maybe that says a lot about the 80s. Maybe people are thinking more progressively about rehabilitation of the criminally insane at this point. You get a very different portrayal of a psychiatrist that's worked for a long time mm. with someone who's committed a mass murder than, say, Dr. Lewis sure. in Halloween, for example. Mm. But maybe that's because Michael Myers is beyond help. And He's evil. Norman Bates seems to be fully rehabilitated. I think the fundamental difference, I mean, there's a lot of differences, obviously, but I really feel like Halloween is a horror movie. And I don't really feel like Psycho 2 is as much of a horror movie. To me, it's a tragedy thriller. Like, if, if I yeah. was going to have to put it in a genre, I think from the second we see Anthony Perkins and we see him, you know, playing Bates, I'm immediately so sad. He's he's being released from the asylum and he's being sent back out into society and already I'm thinking, oh, you poor bastard, this is not going to end well for you and you already look so defeated but that's what i love about i mean there's a lot of things i love about norman bates but he just evokes so much pity <laughs> i just see him as such a lovable underdog for the most part yeah we really want him to do well whereas michael we want to be as evil as humanly possible because that's where we get our kicks right norman i think yeah. evokes a much more complicated palette of emotions and that's again what what makes the character have enough longevity to carry a legacy sequel, I think. I think Norman Bates is what makes this movie work. I think his character and the depth of its writing is what makes it worth exploring. And, and we love Michael for what he is, right? We want him to just be the blank slate, the face of yeah. the faceless evil in the night. And we want Loomis, uh, Loomis the latter, I guess, to be, to, to be that crazy, wild-eyed lion tamer, I guess. Whereas this doctor, Dr. Raymond, played by, I'm going to say his name wrong, is it Robert Loggia? Yeah, Loggia, that's right. Yeah, I think he's a much more even keel, kind of quintessentially seasoned 80s veteran who's not playing it for melodrama, who's probably not as wasted as uh, Sam Loomis in the Halloween franchise, <laughs> and is, is just there to kind of buffer the re-entry into society that Norman Bates is, is attempting. Um, what do you think of his performance? I think it's amazing. I think, so Robert Loja is, is one of those actors that is known for having a really aggressive and like grating mm. persona. And I think in this, he's giving it, he's giving like a, uh, like a James Khan, like a James Khan has had his face mashed into a brick, like that performance. He nailed he, it. James Khan to the max. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's so, it's like the, that amazing performance of James Khan in Thief. Mm-hmm. Where, it's, where he's so cool and he's so calm 
and he's a real calming presence in this horrible, horrible situation. You could do a lot worse than Dr. Raymond as your psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever he is. Yeah, you could get it way worse. You could end up with Dr. Sartain from uh, Halloween 2018. Yeah, or you could you could end up with basically any movie psychiatrist. Yeah. That isn't Niles Crane. A lot, of, a lot of movie doctors suck in general, right? Like going back to The Burning, yeah. the doctors in The Burning are absolutely hysterical. Horror movie doctors, not exactly upholding the Hippocratic Oath to the max all the time, turns out, especially not in the 80s. No. But this guy... They do some harm. They do some harm. They, they harm at will, I would say. But yeah. Dr. Raymond is doing what we love. I know we talk about it a lot on this pod, but um, he's acting with his face the whole time. Very yeah. subtle, very emotive. Not in it enough, in my opinion. I think you could have really pulled a, an enormous plot arc out of him. Slightly disappointed with how he kind of disappears for the whole midsection of the movie and pops back in at the end. But he is he is crucial. And, and he, for me, he's one of uh, a few cast members who really pull out the humanity in Norman Bates and let you kind of ease into the idea that he might be okay. He might have been fully rehabilitated. And maybe he's going to be the hero of this story. Maybe there's something horrible happening in Fairvale and he's going to be the, you know, He's going to be the saviour of the town and his fate's going to completely be flipped on its head. That is not what happens, it turns it's out. Not, it's not quite what happens, is no, it? No, not really. I mean, I think the thing that's giving that gives Norman Bates the humanity, really, mm. is Anthony Perkins, sure. more than anything else. He is amazing in this movie. Yeah. I hadn't seen him in an awful lot of things that weren't Psycho and Psycho sequels. Yeah, Obviously, he's... Uh, He's in Catch-22, which I love. Yeah. Big fan of Catch-22. His role is great in that. Weird film, shouldn't exist, does exist, somehow is amazing. Mm-hmm. Psycho 2. Like this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he is... I think he's got a lot more to do in Psycho 2 than he had to do in Psycho. Mm-hmm. I think I agree. In Psycho, there's no duality there. There's very little subtlety. You know that he is the Psycho. Sure. He's always shot in that way that says, he's my big sign that says, I'm a fucking psycho. I am the titular psycho. Whereas in this, he is constantly walking a line between, this guy is lovely and I just want to see him succeed. And this guy's going to snap at any fucking second. Yeah. And it's amazing how he does that. Yeah. And it's also, I think, the key thing that's happening here in Psycho 2 is that, I mean, if, if you have stayed past the the shower scene, the original shower scene, and, and you're that you're now in it, especially in 1983, you want, you're here because you want to see Norman Bates go psycho. Mm-hmm. Almost instantly, the film changes you. It changes your mind. It makes you think, oh shit, maybe I just want him to be okay. Yeah, absolutely. And like, it splits you right down the middle. It's like, okay, I want him to be okay, but I also want him to go psycho. <laughs> and those things can't exist at the same time. Like Steve Buscemi's eyes in the water boy or whatever. <laughs> like fundamentally going in very Completely different directions. Completely different directions. <laughs> yeah. But I love so, that. Like, I, but look how the movie does that though. I mean, it's amazing. What other roles, what other performances do you see in the horror genre or any other area of cinema where you get uh, one actor singularly giving you all that pathos and all of that threat? You know, he's not he's not doing the classic... Uh, you know, split personality guy. He's not leaning heavily into any cliches or anything here. He is just moving really smoothly from being this incredibly kind and sort of pitiful character to, like you said, the next minute being kind of a boiling pot on a stove. And 
he's not doing it in in like a I'm gonna get you kind of way. He's he's not playing it up. It's it's all incredibly subtle. It's it's words, it's little gestures, it's it's the way he touches certain people. It's it's very, very cleverly yeah. done. And I think I think it's a really masterful portrayal. And he has grown not just in you know his ability but i think in his ability to read a character and then portray it on screen from the first one i think it probably helps that psycho was so massive and that people fell so in love with the character um it probably fueled that a little bit but he he could have turned that into total garbage you know a lot of characters that are that are really loved in their first incarnation if they come back they're completely trashed by the fame and the size and the fandom but he comes back like you said so under the radar and so sort of on a low simmer the first part of the movie that you just don't know where you stand with him yeah and, and even as you sort of as the killings start happening and you're like well it must be him because it's it's the psycho mo mm. maybe in 2023 we're, we're sort of trained to expect some sort of twist mm. but then obviously if you're watching slasher films from the 80s you don't tend to get a twist or if you do it's sleepaway camp or or whatever it's it's that sort of insane twist it's not you know the people that you've hurt with your crimes are slowly trying to drive you mad so you go back to the insane asylum like it's it's not that normally is it no it's not which is like a a beautiful sort of twist really a beautiful play on psycho basically that lila loomis becomes norma bates and through sheer force and abuse and manipulation sends her daughter off to effectively get a load of people killed and ultimately killed herself. It's great. Yeah. Like, one of the things that I thought about this was that it really reminded me... Do you know how, like, the, the Scream franchise is, like, built on slasher tropes that are mostly from, like, the big slashers? Mm. But, like, the the twisty plot of this reminded me of, like, a Scream sequel. It's all about revenge and misdirection. You think that you have it figured out and you absolutely just don't have it figured out. Or if you do have it figured out, something else is about to hit you over the head with a fucking shovel. I think I completely agree. I was feeling similar feelings to the first time you see Scream. Yeah. In a completely different time and place and with a totally different tone and atmosphere, which is lovely. You have to think that Scream can't exist without movies like this. You know, yeah. the, the plot twists, like you said, are really artfully written and cleverly woven in. You don't, if you do feel like you've got a handle on it, I mean, you might have. I mean, I thought I was right about one or two things that turned out to be close to the mark. But I, I can't see anyone watching this for the first time being like, I got it figured out. Here's what's happening. It's not. It's it's way too cleverly obtuse, entertainingly obtuse to just be picked apart like that. And that's because I think a lot of time and effort and craft has gone into creating a real spider web for, for us to fall into as viewers. You know, that's a huge part of what drives the movie forward is the guesswork and the clever reframing of characters as you go through the complete change of how we perceive certain characters from you know from the opening scene to the final scene and the whole time we believe perkins the whole time we believe the performance you think of the arc that norman bates goes through in this movie he goes from Mm. ostensibly sane to starting to crack to totally sane to completely cracked to completely beyond cracked and then back to being as cracked as he was in the first one yeah and the whole time you're, you're with him the entire ride that's a pretty masterful performance, right? In 1983, in a legacy reboot, that's more than you paid for, the price of admission, you know? One of the things that really makes this film special Mm. is that they were trying to make a film that Hitchcock would be happy with. Yeah. They they weren't trying to make a Hitchcock film. They're not Gus Van Sant. They're 
trying to make a film that Hitchcock would be happy with, that would that would sit comfortably as a sequel, a sequel to Psycho, which when you look at Hitchcock's catalogue, he didn't use the same tricks over and over again. So, so doing the same thing that was done in Psycho wouldn't work here. So we do all these other really insane things, like the insane tw- tilted Dutch angles, yeah. the wild sort of God's eye view of things, that huge sort of sweeping crane shot that are amazing. And they feel very Hitchcockian, but in a way that like, obviously Hitchcock couldn't have done some of those things mm. with the technology that was was around when he was making his best films, let's say. Yeah. Richard Franklin, who directed this, also directed a couple of other things that of, of note, Road Games and Patrick with Patrick, um, yeah. Malcolm McDowell. Yeah. But he was a big fan of Hitchcock. So when he was at USC, he had uh, planned uh, like a Hitchcock screening of, of Rope. And he'd sort of asked Hitchcock to come along and talk to the class. And his contemporaries around that time, he was, I think, a year behind George Lucas and a year ahead of John Carpenter. Mm. I think this is around 1967. And like his, this is from an interview that I read in Fangoria, his course leaders or whoever at the time completely considered Hitchcock to be a hack. Wow. I guess like those oldie timey directors, it's 1967, so we're all about fucking Truffaut at this point or whatever. It's USC, I suppose. It's the peak yeah. hipster academia, right? I think from, from that meeting uh, where Hitchcock came and spoke at USC, mm. they got on quite well. Hitchcock invited him to come to some sets that he was working on. So he got a real feel, apparently, for what it was like, what how Hitchcock liked to work, mm. how meticulously he storyboarded things. And he carried that approach through here in Psycho 2. But I think it's, I just think it's beautiful the way that he he makes a film that is evocative of Hitchcock. Very obviously, at some points there are there are shots that mimic shots in the original, yeah. obviously. Uh, but he does different things. Some of it is a bit crude, like obviously in Psycho, it's the first time we really see a toilet in a film. Yeah. Obviously, we've seen toilets on screen before, but it's the first time we've, we've really sort of focused on a toilet. Yeah, we got to talk flushing. about this toilet situation. I'm glad you brought it up. So to, to you know, step that up a notch in Psycho 2, the toilet spews blood everywhere. Yeah. It's a bit silly, but I think it is in the spirit of the sort of the black humour that you would get from Hitchcock. I picked up on this toilet thing because it always fascinated me. I used to use it in in a, a little trivia quiz in, in at school. You know, the first time we see a toilet on a cinema screen is in Psycho. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, that's not strictly true. Yeah, but it's the first time we kind of spend intimate time with a toilet, right? Yeah. First time we linger. Yeah. First time we explore visually. First time we're kind of made to feel pervy about being in a bathroom. <laughs> you know? So when Psycho Two gives us what might be the most hideous toilet that I've ever seen in terms of its design. <laughs> I can't help but think that's an accident. I don't think that's the toilet that was already in that house. I think the set designers went out and found the creepiest toad bowl toilet they could possibly find and plumbed it in specifically for that scene. Do you think I'm insane? I didn't do a direct toilet comparison. It's a gross little toilet. It's got like a... You know how toilets normally have that nice elegant slope from the floor to the bowl that curves inwards? Yeah. yeah. Like the, the back of an S. 
This has a bulbous little frog throat of a, of a front of the toilet. And you can, you can only imagine what it's like to use that thing. You see it from the side and then you see blood spewing out of it from the inside. You're, you're given a lot of time with this toilet. I can't help but think they picked it on purpose to mess with me, to mess with people. <laughs> Maybe not to mess with you. It's a fucking yeah. toilet. There's something, you know, it's, it's chosen because it's backwards and weird and angular and it's Hitchcockian as hell. And I think you're completely right. I think Hitchcock was a director who, based on my reads of his movies, was not afraid of escalation and taking things up a notch. And Psycho 2 escalates in a, a timely fashion, I think. The, the gore and the, the kind of grislier stuff that we see full on in Psycho 2 that we don't get in, in Psycho is, you know, maybe part uh, Hitchcock's eye, maybe part censorship issues. But it's fully, in my opinion, and I, I wrestle with this a little bit, but I think it's fully appropriate in terms of an escalation curve from one movie to the next. You couldn't have this movie in 83 and not see some of the stuff that we see, you know, in terms of the murders. Yeah. People just wouldn't have gone to see it. When, when, when the violence first started happening, I thought to myself, uh, is that cheapening the idea of Psycho and the, the subtlety of the violence? And then I thought to myself, no, because A, that's not how I view legacy sequels, and B, it's pretty rad. <laughs> this is some, some good gore in this movie. Yeah, well, I think I think it sort of slowly escalates as well. You it start does. off with the with a scene of of Toomey, and like you see one swipe of the knife mm. that makes contact and cuts his face, yeah. and then you don't see the kill blow mm-hmm. that goes in his chest or his belly or whatever. Yeah, you just see him kind of die facially, right? Yeah. So you, so you're thinking. Again, it's it's this movie playing with your expectations. Mm. You're thinking, okay, we're we're doing subtlety. We're doing Hitchcock style su- subtlety, a la the original Psycho. Yeah. So when you get to Lila Loomis's death, holy cow! You're blown away by how horrible and violent that is. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And that comes. Uh, I mean, there's 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 some good violence in between there, right? There's some some really fun kills and some some good stuff. What's, what else is in between? Is there? Um, I wrote them all down in order. Let me have a look. Because I know that there's the there's the teenager in the cellar. Yeah, the teens who just insist on sneaking into the Bates house basement to fuck. <laughs> uh, my my note for this was grim as balls. Um, just I didn't find that hugely believable when the cop was talking about it when he was like kids like to sneak in there and fuck or whatever whatever he said and i was like do they and then they showed it happen and i was like oh of course they do who doesn't want to slowly unroll a soiled mattress on the dirt floor of a murder house basement smoke two pools of a tiny little joint and then start squeezing boobs like who doesn't want to do that in fairvale that sounds great it was such a gross little scene i'm I'm kind i kind of acutely hone in on portrayals of youth in movies like this where nobody is young you know no, nobody involved yeah. in this movie is young and i feel like that was a little bit of a, a a bum hand for those kids to be dealt that kid's murder doesn't it's not shown is yeah. it it's just shadow and not it's really it's yeah exactly fingers so on a window you, you know which i think is a lovely hitchcockian thing that is that is really evocative of something that hitchcock would do yeah. and and it's nice so yeah and that, that is a slight escalation because you see you, you feel a lot more peril in that moment sure. than you do with, say, Toomey's death. Mostly because Toomey is a fucking greasy prick. And this kid is, you know, just an innocent, horny, stoned kid. I thought you'd love Toomey. i got to say, not to jump I mean, I, I do love Toomey, <laughs> but he's... I love to wait for him to die. I bet you like, love his the, ashtray, right? You want that ashtray. I, I, yeah, his shirt, 
his ashtray, his little Ron Jeremy moustache. <laughs> I want it. I want it all. Pretty good Halloween costume for you, by the way, bud. Yeah, I could do that. That could be pretty good. But yeah, so when you get to that stab, I think that's the only kill between Toomey and Lila. Right, right. And so when you get to that knife through the mouth, out the back of the neck kill, it feels like a big fuck you. Yeah. In in the best way possible. It does. And it... What it felt like, I mean, I went through about six different emotions in the space of that, you know, 0.6 second kill. And at first I was like, oh, no, it looks shit. It looks pretty good. I really like it. Fuck, I'm in. Like, it just, (laughs) that was kind of my process. You know, I thought it was going to happen differently. And I thought there was going to be some dialogue is what I thought was going to happen. So when she opens her mouth and gets a fucking huge knife rammed through it, it is genuinely surprising, right? Nothing yeah. in the film has told you so far that anything like that's going to happen on screen. I didn't know what rating this movie was, but it was all f- relatively tame up until here. So yeah, it knocks you back in your seat. And I think it starts a chain of events that that weaves in just the tiniest little sprinkling of comedy. There's just yeah. a tiny little edge to some of the violence and some of Norman's behavior that you can't help but laugh at a little bit. And that, again fucking masterfully done because that final kill is so brutal but it it has you right on the head of the pin as to whether you're going to piss yourself laughing or be absolutely mortified with that final blow and i was i I folded in on myself for that kill because i did not know how to react or how to feel it was just incredible and again i can't help but think that's artful build-up in terms of the placement of the violence the nature of the violence subtle touches of comedy his character and what we expect from him and this completely wackadoo plot that finally resolves uh, with with a death blow. Phenomenal, really. Like, now that I say it out loud, I'm even more convinced of how great it is. It is ludicrous how good (laughs) Psycho 2 is. (laughs) It is, I totally agree. Yeah. So in 1982, Robert Block, who wrote the original Psycho, wrote a novel called Psycho 2. Here's my copy. There it is. Are you familiar at all with Psycho 2, the novel? No, I read Psycho, the novel, but I never read Psycho 2. I know the plot and I know the controversy between the the novel and the what is not actually an adaptation at all. No. So I don't know if Robert Block got wind that they were making a sequel and spaffed out Psycho 2. Right. Or whether it was just sort of kismet or whether Robert Block wrote his sequel to Psycho and how horrible and leechy and gross Hollywood is. And Hollywood was like, no, fuck you. We own Psycho. We'll go make some money off this. Um, I don't know which way that landed, but a very different experience, Psycho 2. Yeah. Uh, the novel to the film. I quite like the novel. It's very trashy, very cheap feeling, but in a way that is quite enjoyable to me. I mean, I don't think Psycho, the novel itself, is is uh you know particularly literary do you know what i mean it's good i like it a lot no but it's yeah. it's not you know it's not like uh like a lot of you know like a lot of movies uh books that end up becoming movies it's not like a masterpiece that's then you know sullied by hollywood i think it's a good thriller that turns into a great movie in my opinion did you think that to me in this feels like how Norman Bates is described in the original psycho oh yeah actually oh god yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so to me in the novel Psycho, uh, I feel a lot like uh, I identify Norman Bates' character visually and in some of the mannerisms with Harold Lauder from The Stand. That's my my direct parallel. But yeah, now that you've said it to me, uh, maybe in a slightly more insidious way, 
in a more eighties way. Yeah, feels a lot like feels a lot like that. Yeah. So I wanted to go through a couple of my favorite shots. There are two shots that I think are well. I mean, there are all of the insane shots, the Dutch angles, the God's eye view. But there are two shots that I think are far and away some of my favorite shots in any movie. Oof! Come on, hit me. I like this. So the end shot of Norman outside the house is amazing. It's gorgeous. Like, it's insane that you don't get that shot in the original Psycho. Yeah, true. And I think that's so iconic. I think of that when I think of Psycho now. Mm. And there's also a shot of Norman in front of a stained glass window that is just incredible. He's just sort of slowly coming around the corner of the stained glass windows at the top of the stairs. And for a moment, he's like silhouetted perfectly against this like beautiful coloured stained glass. And it's just an amazing shot amazing there's some really beautiful camera work in this movie i mean skimming over every single dutch angle but there's a couple of moving dutch angles outside where the house just seems to tilt and lean towards you that i imagine in the cinema was just like so ominous and so sort of dread inducing and really creepy this movie does a great job of bringing in really creepy feelings with these low angles i love it i love Mm. what's being done visually with you know a, a locale that i love i think it looks beautiful it's so interesting because it, we're, we're a couple of years after Evil Dead here, where obviously Sam Raimi is doing insane things with the camera. Sure. This is doing insane things with the camera, but they feel much more grounded in like film history, mm. cinema history. Like it feels like Raimi is tearing up the rule book and starting again. It feels like we're we're using the rule book here, but we're using it in a in a new and in an insane way, which I think stands for the the, the film as a whole. All your expectations, like we've said a million times, are subverted. Mm. And so the idea that you're seeing these shots that you've seen a thousand times or these these types of camera moves or these types of shots a thousand times, the dolly zoom, the Dutch angle, the, the insane crane shots. But like, it all feels so fresh. Even in 2023, it feels like... I mean, there's, there are some times when it gets a bit like, oh, I wonder if this was going to be a TV movie. Right. <laughs> Because it feels a bit like a TV movie in parts, mainly when the camera is completely static and it's just two characters talking to each other. In close quarters, I think that happens a lot, right? Like the diner yeah. is obviously a really small place to shoot and you do get a lot of those kind of TV movie moments, but they feel more Lynchian than they do crap sitcom. So again, yeah. I think it you cruise through those, you know, just on the right side of tacky. Yeah, well, I guess like Twin Peaks is TV. Yeah, for sure. So, like, yeah, maybe. But, yeah, it's just, like, it's insane that, like, you've got these sort of two opposite approaches to to filmmaking mm. with, like, Raimi on one side and Richard Franklin, who is film school Hitchcock. And, like, they both come out with, like, this insane... I think maybe the early 80s was just a time when you could... When there was, what, 70 years of film before you... Mm. 70 years of this is how it's done. And it's just like, okay, we know how it's done. How can we do that, but different? And I think, yeah, maybe the early 80s, in the same way that we realised in the 90s that we can be postmodern about characters or tropes or subverting tropes or whatever, maybe the early 80s is the time where they realised that you didn't have to just plant a camera somewhere and do what, what everyone's done before you. Which, you know... Hitchcock was a big part of pushing that envelope. I think it's having it feels it just sort of feels magical. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's I mean, comparing the two the two directors, you've got 
varying levels of like a sense of fun and a willingness to really push the envelope and a capacity to have a movie that's you know evil dead is is way more tongue-in-cheek in a lot of ways so it can it can just bend that axis a little bit further um psycho 2 does it really tastefully for my money it, it does it um, enough times for you to feel like it's very much a part of the style of the movie and it's not just like a throwback to the original and then move on with something else hmm. there's a great shot in the uh in the Bates house where the camera kind of pans up and round like over an archway with Mary on the floor underneath and she's looking directly at the camera and I thought that was like nauseatingly effective it was really cool yeah. it felt ghostly it felt kind of spectral and it immediately brought in classic haunted house vibes so we've we've got a lot of really beautiful horror influences throughout the movie and a lot of things you know tweaking at the edges of like a classic you know standard horror movie and it does play with a lot of those conventions really well i think Raimi is obviously maybe i say obviously maybe like slightly braver in his attack and the way that yeah, he just so. hurls everything at the uh at the wall and, and sees what sticks but you don't really need that in a movie like this bates is insane enough without the visuals mirroring that you don't need the, yeah. the world to be bending around Bates as he flies chaotically through all this mayhem that's happening around him. I thought um, Paul Dano played Mary Samuels really, really well in this movie. I thought... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can you see the resemblance? <laughs> like, now you've said it, still no. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time I was like, it's Paul Dano. It totally is. It's not, but again. I'll do one last thing on... on uh, on Raimi, is I think Raimi has a real Midwestern, didn't go to film school feeling. Sure. Whereas there's a real Hollywood feel to to Richard Franklin's mm. movies. But even when he was making movies in Australia, his native Australia, mm. he was still he still felt very Hollywood. Didn't see didn't see the Paul Dano thing. <laughs> hey, so I couldn't unsee. Speaking it. of speaking of Mary Samuels. There is a shower scene in Psycho 2. Mm-hmm. You get some of the shots that are the same as shots from the original Psycho, sure. directly on the shower head. Mm-hmm. Uh, the drain, the shower curtain looks to be the same. You think the police might have taken it away? Who knows? But the shower curtain looks to be the same. The peephole's there. It's all very similar. You spend your entire time thinking, oh God, something's going to happen. And what happens is the original Psycho is so carefully cut together that you don't see a whisker, literal or figurative. And what you get here in Psycho 2 is you get basically full frontal, leery, voyeuristic, makes you feel like, hey, this is quite sexy. Oh, now I feel gross because I'm just leering at this woman. And that's what it wants you to feel like. It takes that level of voyeurism up to an uncomfortable I assume that the level of voyeurism that we got in Psycho when it first came out was uncomfortable for a lot of people mm. so it's just sort of bringing that up to date in a world where you know erotic thrillers are happening all of, all the time nudity is par for the course like the level of nudity that you get here just feels so icky like it's just it's so lingering and and leery and gross. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that happening in this era, right? I mean, slowly, slowly, slowly pushing the envelope as far as humanly possible in that department. I think in a lot of these movies, I, I think the level of, I mean, I guess 
intimacy in the in the the peephole and the voyeurism type scenes in in psycho it was unprecedented i would imagine in terms of audience reactions i can only imagine what the backlash was like in this movie i think that shower scene is look look, any peephole scene is a real treat for a viewer because it it is innately going to make you feel both uncomfortable and aroused and there's something that heightens your sensitivity and the tension of being caught in any kind of peephole scene it's uh you know it's a kind of vicarious creepy joy that's really fun as a viewer to get involved with and in this it's it's amplified a thousand times by the fact that you don't really know who's looking you don't know who you are in that scene yeah Um, you're aware that maybe Bates is being fucked with but you don't know how you don't know what Mary's role is in all of this. You think she's innocent, but are you going to trust her? No, this is Psycho 2. There are no rules. So you have no idea who you're looking at or who you are when you're looking. And that has the, you know, the sort of, again, delirious, semi-nauseating, discombobulating feeling of of true Hitchcockian cinema. But it's done in bright Technicolor with a huge boob on show. So again, you just don't know how you feel. <laughs> it's just like, fuck, yeah. what's happening? And And what does it do? It just blows past it. It doesn't it happens and then wham you're on to the next thing and it gets a little bit breathless in terms of pacing in this part of the movie it's it's hit after hit and we're just kind of riding along with norman as he slowly goes insane and i love it i think yeah. it works perfectly meg tilly's performance isn't mind-blowing but it's perfectly fine i think her character basically exists as a stand-in for us yeah like she starts off wanting bates to go insane and is ultimately so won over by his charm that she just wants him to be happy and normal which is ultimately the the viewer experience except yeah absolutely. we have this really sinister layer where like you said we want him to go psycho a bit as well we kind of yeah. want to kill her yeah not paul dano's finest work but i i thought that <laughs> he he carried the right <laughs> i thought he, he he did okay given the i mean i can't even imagine i feel i feel really mean criticizing anyone and anything in this movie because can you imagine the pressure of being in Psycho 2, let alone making it. You've got everything to lose here, really, haven't you? Yeah. Oh, you were the you were the you were the actor that ruined the entire legacy of one of the greatest movies of all time. <laughs> nice one, dickhead. I guess that's not how I see legacy sequels, as we know, but there's a huge audience of people who do, and I think she did a pretty solid job. I think Vera Miles coming back from from the original Psycho was pretty rock solid too. Yeah. She gave me everything I needed out of the role for sure. I think Hugh Gillen as Sheriff Hunt is one of the standout performances for me. Again, not enough screen time, but he delivers a beautiful little uh, monologue towards the end of the film when he's talking to... I think he's hilarious. Yeah. I think his character is so funny. Yeah, he's great. Again, not a wasted second on screen. He's he's filling, no. filling every scene he's in. Really, really great work. And I found, again, I found that transition from kind of funny to incredibly serious at the end to be, you know pretty masterful in terms of performance yeah so obviously he tells that story at the end the the basically the incorrect uh, assumption of what's happened there when he walks in on mary not samuels but loomis holding a knife above gordon's head while he's appearing to be like begging for his life on the ground yeah and he tells that story and norman is ultimately in the eyes of the police and the people of Fair Vale, yep, Fair Vale, <laughs> Norman Bates is innocent and completely sane. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know if, if the film is trying to say, examine your prejudices. Don't don't just look at something that you see one way 
and then assume that you know everything about it because obviously that's what the film has done throughout. So I don't know if the film is maybe making that so blatant or like articulated so specifically. Sure. But I mean, it, it certainly fits with what we've been watching for the last 90 minutes or whatever it is. Yeah, I think as a morality tale, it's working on several levels and, and not in not in the way that, again, not in the way that you expect. It's not delivering, uh, you know, a, a treatise on rehabilitation. It's not, it's not doing that no. at all. It's doing something really fun with that, which is use it against you. You know, it's weaponizing all your ideas of character arcs and and story resolution and just pointing it straight back at you for the whole movie. So you, you walk away really nicely confused, I think. It's the kind of movie where I think a lot of people probably would watch it nowadays and Google psycho to explained <laughs> you know, yeah. have someone else tell me what the fuck is going on in this movie what i really liked is norman comes back from being in an asylum for killing seven people having actually been legally declared not guilty by means of insanity and he's so upset by the state of his family motel having fallen into being i think it's described as a bordello um you know being run for for sex and and for cheap thrills etc that he fires the guy who's running it on site and just steps straight back into the role that he left. Again, it's, it's interesting because is he genuinely outraged or does he just want to run the motel again? But I think if he is genuinely outraged by that level of, of moral decay, it adds such a cool layer to Norman Bates. To come out yeah, of, of the asylum for killing seven people and be really upset that people are fucking in your motel is great <laughs> as a character arc. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I was expecting some sort of flashback mm. or something to show that you know norman planted the the drugs that he found in that room right. or even that lila planted the drugs that he found in that room but no i think they're just there i think they are just there what what drugs are, i mean i saw poppers and then was it like a pipe yeah. or something i couldn't tell what else was in his hand <sighs> who knows I, but i love Drug that it's paraphernalia poppers. i love yeah. that it's poppers <laughs> I think, but so the, like fairvale small town yeah 754 signatures how much fucking goes on in their motels there? Tell me about it. I mean, jam-packed by the look of things. Uh, but that's what's so cool is that Norman was watching people shower in that motel and then he was murdering them. And he's really upset that people are doing drugs and having sex. I think that's brilliant. I think that's so cool. Yeah, there's probably something to decode in there, but I just haven't got the brain capacity. Well, what's great, I mean, it's the duality again, isn't it? In this movie, we see the duality in full force. Norman is totally tortured. And we see him being tortured the whole way through the first movie and yeah. his torture is left to linger at the end of that movie. We walk away knowing that Norman Bates will be tortured for all eternity in an institution. Psycho 2 releases him into the wild and possibly to be even more tortured than he was in the first and has been in the intervening years. And that's the the sort of sad beaten dog side of Norman Bates that we, that we immediately fall in love with, I think, in this movie. But the torture yeah. is basically relentless and... The, the, the... Even before Lila and Mary are torturing yeah. him, he's just he's just tortured by being in this space. Yeah, the room where his mum slept, the basement where he kept her corpse, the cupboard where the tea that he poisoned her with, the knife in the drawer—it's all there. It all serves to remind him. I think it might be a bit of a an oversight by 
police or whoever that he's just allowed to go back there to a place where he killed all these people. So the California Board of Psychiatry is like, tell you what, don't just go back to where you used to live. Go back to the scene of the crime. Take up your old job. Be surrounded by the murder weapon and all the things that you used to kill people since you were 12 years old. And just see how it pans out. Your doctor will check in with you maybe once a week if you're lucky. Uh, Good luck, bud. What are you doing? It's astonishing. It's wild, right? Yeah. But I love that. You couldn't have like, oh, Norman Bates, but he's in New York. You know, it's not gonna, It's not Jason takes Manhattan. Yeah. He's got to go back. There's no, there's no fucking ambiguity there. That's the place he has to be. I think what gets overlooked, maybe in my brief reading around this movie, the music is absolutely perfect in this movie. Yeah, it's amazing. From the very opening scene, I mean, it's stripped back, but I didn't notice it till the very end, but there's very classical feeling piano and strings that that are totally romantic and really sorrowful and mournful the whole way through but they start weaving in synth part way through the movie they start just bringing in subtle very 80s hums and some drones and some some quite piercing trills and stuff and and it it comes in without you noticing but it brings it brings the 80s with it you know it brings the whole score up to speed and i don't think you can fuck with this movie score i think it's absolutely brilliant yeah i think when Richard Franklin was was making it or was trying to sort the music out. He was offered to use the Bernard Herrmann original music, right? And he turned it down, Oof, wow. which is fucking bold, <laughs> that right? <is> gutsy. <laughs> like in a world where that score, at least that theme tune, yeah. like that main theme, is so iconic. Yeah. And the idea that you make Psycho 2 without it, although, I mean, there, there are elements of it in Jerry Goldsmith's score, like it's very much uh, Jerry Goldsmith is working in the same way that Richard Franklin is capturing a sort of Hitchcockian tone without being, without putting on a fat suit and smoking a big cigar. <laughs> like, Jerry Goldsmith is doing a similar thing. Like, he's, it's the difference between, like, I don't know, a Weird Al cover version, like a Weird Al song and like one of the weird out album tracks that are like pastiches of artists sure. it's, it's like that subtle difference that it's like yeah okay you can take a song and you can put the word fat in it or you can distill the very nature of an artist into a couple of verses and a chorus that are that sound like simultaneously like it could be that person but it also is massively taking the piss out of them. Obviously, this isn't taking the piss out of Bernard Herrmann, but it's uh, sure. It's 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 a really special score, and, and I think it's amazing. It's gorgeous. It does it does so many things that you could easily miss because you're so caught up in plot twists. But yeah, to turn down a, a particular piece of music that is it's up there with Jaws. Like no one goes in the sea without making the Jaws noise, and nobody does a stabbing motion without making the psycho noise. You know, it's speaking of Jaws. Yeah, the the tagline for the novel is just when you thought it was safe to go back in the shower. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> You're always fucking kidding me. <laughs> it's great. There's a spin-off in there, Psycho Jaws. Yeah, I mean, give the Sci-Fi Channel two thousand dollars and two years, and they will have Psycho Jaws. Yep. Nick Nolte, a green screen. And uh, I don't know, Bruce Campbell, we're away. Yeah. On a serious note, no pun intended, this, this score for me, now that I, I look back, it tracks Norman Bates's psyche 
and it doesn't do it in a way that's overpowering. I'm going to, this is going to be crazy, but I might enjoy it more than the original score, I think, in terms of its, its, its the practical application of the musical pieces and, and where they're where they're placed in the movie. The thing I love most is you get this feeling of like slowly waning hope from the music. Mm. You do not in any way think when the music goes to that sad, you know, deteriorating place that Norman is going to be okay. You know from the music that this is kind of the beginning of the end for him and the slow unraveling has, has gone too far to ever be kind of rolled back up. What we don't expect is for him to get away with it all scot-free and for everyone to think he's really cool. <laughs> that's, that's again, subverting your expectations, yeah. is that you want him to be sane and to just be a passenger on this fucking insanity ride that he's on. Yeah. It turns out that he is, but he's just so driven insane by the experience of it all that he just can't escape that. And so you you think, okay, he's got away with it. He's... He's, he's managed to get through the other side of this experience and he's sane and he's fine. Yeah. But he's fucking not. No, he's in a real pickle. And then, you know, he poisons his real mother. His which, you mother. know, I'm not sure how much I love Mrs. Spool as an addition. She's fucking shit. But I love the idea, so I go with it. Like, I, I actually yeah. kind of love how tacky and soap opera-ish it is to, to be like, I had you as a teen and we were locked away together, you know, separate but together your whole life. I like the, I like the idea enough that she cruises. I don't, I don't think she hits it right squarely on the head, to be honest. Um, no. She's no... Uh, I don't really buy her, I don't really buy her killing the teenage boy in the, in the basement and cleaning up the body and putting the basement back together. She's pretty crispy. As a frail yeah. old lady, yeah. She's kind of, uh, she's a duster. She's not going to be, you know, overpowering. I mean, the kid was baked and scared, but... And, and dead. And with, probably had a boner at the time, I would imagine. Um, yeah. I think it was, if an old lady's trying to kill me while I've got a boner, I'm going to find it really hard to fight back. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not seeing it as an asset in that situation. It's going to... What, what are you thinking? I don't like your face right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just thinking. I'm just trying to put, figure out what, what I would do. What would you do, bud? Probably just die a agonizing death. Yeah, obviously. sure. I, we, we both be fucked. I'd be way too scared to even function. So she, she, she kills Lila Loomis, right? Yeah. So Lila Loomis's death. I buy that she does it. I love. I absolutely love that she buries Lila Loomis in the coal. Yeah. You know, the old school thing of just having a coal flap and a truck dumping loads of coal into your cellar and her head, her face is just in there screaming in agony with a fucking hole where a knife's gone in her mouth. Such a creepy scene. It's that beautiful kind of fakeness that I love. You know, you can tell that's not the actress. It's a, a made up head, but it looks it looks so grotesque. And it's so surprising. I don't know about you, but you know, the scene where they're talking in the basement and the coal is like falling a little bit in the background. It's shifting. I thought... Holy crap, were they so pressed for time that they just let that shit happen? Like the coal is just rolling around in the background and they just they carry on shooting. And then here we go. It's because there's a fucking body in there. That's so clever. Subverting yeah. yet another expectation and, and taking your assumption and throwing it back at you and saying, ha, fuck you, you didn't know there was a body in there, did you? How do you feel about Dr. Raymond's death scene? I, I think that's a point where I, I kind of giggled a tiny bit. I think anytime. Um, someone is kind of semi-accidentally stabbed and fully accidentally hurled over a banister to have the knife driven deeper into their body <laughs> and then 
he dies laying on his back at the bottom of the stairs. Again, do you know what? I'd be absolutely astonished if the Halloween Legacy sequels didn't almost lift that directly for at mm. least two of the deaths in the David Gordon Green Halloween movies, but we'll come back to that. A, a, a sad death, I thought, I'm not going to say it's a, you know, a cop-out necessarily, but I think he had to die at her hands. Um, yeah. And I actually quite liked... I quite like the actual action of his death, you know, the falling and the, the knife through the belly. Um, that was kind of cool. What about you? Generally, I quite like mm. it. It's the shot of the knife getting sort of forced deeper, which, you know, probably would happen yeah. in that situation. But it's just like that shot of it, like catching the banister and going deeper is really almost skirts into ridiculous. Yeah, that's why I chuckle. But it's, I mean, it's not an accident. Yeah, that they put that scene in there. They they know what they're doing. They know that that's fucking stupid. Mm. Again, just trying to mess with your head. Like this is horrible. This is a character that we really like. That's been a a, a really strong role model and like, integral to Norman's recovery. Yeah, and now he's dying in the most hideous, ridiculous way possible. Yeah, you can't. You can't die more insanely than being accidentally stabbed, falling off the top of a ban- uh, the top of a balcony, smashing the knife into your guts, on, on as, as you hit the banister on the way down, and then collapsing in a pool of blood at the bottom. Yeah. Like there's no, I'd rather get stabbed in the mouth. I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, there's no nobility. There's no last words. There's nothing. Yeah. Pointed there's no about dignity in dying no. like that. You could. You. Yeah. They might as well have dubbed like. Boing when he when he hits the banister, but I like that. I thought this is pretty eighties. It's it's kind of fun, and they're doing it to the guy that you don't want to die in the first place. They're doing it to the guy that you see as a sage or a you know a positive influence on Norman, someone who's facilitated his recovery, and he's just slain unceremoniously in a total whoopsie yeah. daisy. <laughs> I think that's great. Yeah, like we're we're not in bonkers eighties yet. <laughs> yeah, right. True, actually. Yeah. So like we don't want. We're not going into a film just desperately hoping that everyone's going to die. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there are there are characters in this that are definitely made for you to want them to die. Mm-hmm. I think Lila to, to a degree, and definitely Toomey. Yeah, maybe even Mary to to a greater or lesser degree, depending on your your specific personality. I guess I wanted to die yeah. almost immediately. I think I, I wavered. So when she's pitched as the the goodie at the beginning, mm. like when she's just the innocent girl that Norman's trying to help. I was like, oh, Norman, don't don't kill her. Yeah, She's just having a shit time with her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And then when she's when she, when she she's revealed to be the daughter of Lila, and it's like, oh, fucking, yeah, she deserves it. Kill her. Yep. Get her now. And, and then, then when she suddenly comes back around to, to thinking that Norman is a human being, it's like, oh, don't kill her. And then at the end, she thinks he's a killer. So, you know, that's... She deserves... She gets... What you get for thinking that Norman is a killer? You get killed. <laughs> you get killed. <laughs> she got it. She definitely got killed. By this point in the movie, I think we've been spun around a bunch. And and when we get to the scene, do you want to talk about what happens between Norman and Mary? Because it's quite intense. I've got a weird random observation that I've made about this scene. So he gets the phone call from his real mother. Yeah. And so she goes and puts on the mother costume mm-hmm. to like, you know, This is the Friday the thirteenth stuff, right? This is dressing up yeah. like Pamela Voorhees, yeah. But like to help to make him realise that it's not his mother on the phone because she's his mother. Mm-hmm. And he's but he's too far gone at this point. He's too insane. I think he's really he's confused getting, as well. 
which is yeah. really interesting. Norman Bates is confused by this. Did you notice? And I absolutely love this. When he's talking on the phone, he switches ears. Switches sides. To yeah. That is duality personified. You couldn't. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It's, so it's, like it? it's so pure. And that's, I think, again, that's that pure Hollywood take that is maybe slightly elevated from, you know, let's just go nuts. This is just trash cinema. There is there is a, a slight elevation there that I, I really, really like. Anyway, sorry, carry on. When you sit down and think about it, it's like, oh, that's a bit on the nose, but you never you never see it happen in a way that's like, I'm changing sides now. Exactly. It's just like sometimes he's like sort of moving changing his body language mm-hmm. so he's a bit covered up so it's a private conversation between him and his mum yeah so you don't really think hey he's changing here you just sort of think he's moving it's so it's so subtle but also like not subtle at all but it never feels telegraphed yeah and i think when it, it's great when it happens the second time you're like oh shit i think i see what's happening here so when it happens maybe the third and fourth time you do get that awesome feeling that you get that you only really get from moments like this in movies where you go ooh, because you know he's talking to his mum, but you still don't know if there's anyone on the end of the line you don't know if it's all yeah. in his head or if he's being fucked with or it, i thought for a period of time there that he was messing with mary i thought yeah no me too yeah, i thought he's not crazy he's so sane that he's driving her crazy and that isn't a great you know that's that's not an accident at some point someone making this movie said people are going to think that norman's totally sane and that he's such a master manipulator that he's starting to drive his tormentors insane you know like a kind of crazy flip on the flip uh but that's obviously not what's happening and norman is very much being talked to by the specter of his mother yeah um so so she goes and puts the normal costume on mm-hmm. And it's still in front of him being like, hey, look, it's me. I'm your mother. And he's confused as fuck. Mm-hmm. And he starts sort of moving towards her. And she's just sort of lightly jabbing at him with the knife to try and keep him away. So he gets stabbed in his hands. And it makes it, it sort of looks like the Sigmata. Yeah. Now, I couldn't really find, besides the stained glass window, any other overtly religious imagery in Psycho 2. So mm-hmm. I had a big, long, hard think about what that could possibly mean. And I never really got anywhere with it. I guess Norman Bates is possibly the most famous son in cinema. It's not a stretch. And there's also this sort of holy trinity of mothers. There's his actual mother, Mrs. Spool. There's Lila, who's dressing up as his mother. And there's Mary, who's also dressing up as his mother. Mm. I don't really know if that was on purpose or... If it means anything, I just sort of saw the stigmata and couldn't really think about anything else for a while. I like that. I like that, Read. There is a moment later on where he crosses his arms in front of him as though he's in a coffin mm. and he's got his two bandaged hands over his two shoulder wounds. And I thought that was, you know, possibly symbolic of something that I'd missed in the movie. But you've done done the homework on the religious angle. I thought the hand wounds were really clever part of plotting because that's classic defensive wound, right? when you hold your hands up yeah. and get stabbed in your hands. And I thought that's going to, you know, that's going to play into this somehow later on. And at the end, when it turns out he's by happenstance painted out to have been defending himself against lots of different attacks, I think the hand wounds just play in his favor. But I like the religious angle. I think that's cool. Yeah, no, I mean, like I say, I, I don't, because there's not a loads of overtly religious symbolism or imagery, mm. it might just feel like I'm reaching a little bit. I don't know. I feel like you can't stab 
person through both of their palms without me thinking about Jesus on the cross. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's gonna maybe it's just designed to make you at least at least to evoke that kind of mm. place. You know that kind of uh, that that aspect of Norman's character. You could go there if you wanted to. What I love about Norman at this point, by the way, is that he is bumbling through the end of this movie. He's not the master manipulator. He's not a tough, gritty survivor type. He has no idea what's happening, and he just careens from calamity to calamity in a pretty kind of mellow way, bouncing from you know problem to problem with no real drive or goal of his own. He's not trying to survive. He's not trying to escape. He's not trying to kill. He's not trying to rescue himself. He's just trying to get to the end of the movie, kind of. Yeah. And I think it's great that he fucking Ernest goes to camp or whatever. What's that? For? Ernest goes <laughs> to camp is one of them. Ernest goes to camping his way to the end of this movie, but in the best possible way. When, when do you ever get a, a protagonist who is also kind of an antagonist, who has absolutely no stake in the game by the end of the movie and who isn't trying to achieve anything except kind of get to the finish line? It doesn't really happen very often, does it? No, definitely not. Like he just wants to, he doesn't even just want to survive. He just wants to understand what's happening so he can make yeah. a decision about what he's going to do next. And the film doesn't give him that. No. At all. Like, he, he's just physically there in the scenes where Lila's stabbing him. Like, he doesn't want to die, but he doesn't understand what's happening. In the cinema, mm. in the cinema, in the police station afterwards, when the, the police have decided what's happened and presumably yeah. haven't even questioned him, and they say, do you want to go home? He's just like, okay. It's not <laughs> I like... I will go home like, now. Yeah, it's, 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 it's... The system has failed Norman Bates. You're 100% right. The system has failed, Norman Bates. Will you give it up, man? Nobody's out there. We're alone. Oh, no, there's somebody out there. I'm picking up all this crosstalk. He is, after all of that, sent home alone again. Yeah, to be in the house where... Not only did all those murders happen from the first movie, but all the murders from the second movie. and, and the- Close relatives of the people he murdered in the first movie died in that house. His doctor died in that house. And a random kid died in that house. Yeah. And they just send him home. It's incredible. The saddest scene in the entire movie happens when he gets home, I think. He makes a toasted cheese sandwich and sits alone in that kitchen and, I mean, don't even get me started on how sad the sandwiches are. Oh, so God, yeah. But the loneliest sandwiches in cinema, right? <laughs> even, when even when they're cut in half and shared, the loneliest sandwiches <laughs> in the history of movies. Oh, it's so bleak. And I, I just, even after all the things that have happened and, and the fact that I know he's like a psychological ticking time bomb, I just want to hug him. I want to hug his little body and kiss his little face. And tell him it's going to be okay. And then his biological mother shows up. What do you think happens here? Because obviously he kills her immediately with mm. by poisoning her with the same tea that he poisoned his his the, the woman that raised him. Yeah. And then hits her with a shovel. Like, why does he do that immediately? I think he has to kill mother. I think if there's any, you know, singular drive in in the core of Norman Bates's character that is kind of cold and inhuman and obviously a product of his insanity 
uh, but a huge motivi- motivating factor in his his whole character it's that he just has to kill mother and as soon as he finds out he's not really killed mother he just has to get it done straight away and he knows how he's done it before mm. and he does it this is the classic 80s escalation and, and the kind of tasteful escalation that i i think the movie culminates with and that gave me the whole idea that this whole thing is an escalation of tragedy and sorrow he poisons her and the second that she knows she's poisoned he delivers one of the most devastating death blows i've seen in a movie just smashing this old woman in the back of the head with a spade full swing yeah. in the kitchen and you see it from two different angles it's an absolute showstopper of a kill I'm I'm going to put it probably top of the list of the kills that we've had on the pod so far for me. It's so stunning. Yeah, I think again, I think there's there's a, there's a there's a there's a frisson of humour there. There's something yeah. objectively hilarious about hitting an old woman with a shovel. We've all done it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it's the noise she makes. There is something fucking funny about that. Yeah, but it's the 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 humour that it elicits in you that makes it even more grim yeah. and grisly because you're laughing at something terrible. I think it's one of the, correct me if I'm wrong, but we really see Norman being really violent here. It's it's an unleashing of everything that's been hinted at for this, you know, three hours of movie. And we finally get to see him unleash the fury on Mother. Yeah. The last time he killed Mother was when he was 12. And he's been Mother ever since. Now he gets to do it again. He kind of enjoys it. Yeah. Well, that's it's pretty amazing. Like, again, subverts your expectations. But you think the cop, the sheriff sends him home. And he's just going to go back to his sad little home, but, you know, mm-hmm. completely insane. Maybe he'll hear the voice of mother again. Yeah. But no, there's this old woman there for him to kill. I I wasn't sure if, like you say, it's the impulse that he has to just kill mother or whether it was like, I don't care whether this is true. I just, I have a mother. She's in the other room screaming at me right now. Right. So what you're saying doesn't matter. Take a shovel. Yeah. Have a, have a bloody little sip of this and a big whack of that yeah could be i think also norman maybe with my read of it because he has to kill mother yeah, i don't know where i was going with that i got completely lost in your <laughs> lost in your take i forgot the fuck i was gonna say sorry the the voice that he hears after he kills her isn't mrs spool it's the original norma bates true same actress so it doesn't matter that she's his mother that, that mrs spool is his mother because his mother in his head is is Norma Bates? Maybe that's it. This is what I was thinking. So, Norman Bates's identity is born out of killing his mother at the age of twelve and having a long and rich relationship with her from that moment onwards. That is the the duality and the foundational aspect of his psyche and his psychological disorder. For this woman to come in and undermine it by saying I'm actually your mother is probably, uh, if he acknowledges it fully like his doctor keeps saying if you acknowledge that your mother's dead then your mental illness goes away essentially if he acknowledges that this is his mother and she's alive he's just going to detonate or split completely down the middle or have some kind of complete psychological collapse so he has to kill mother again so that mother is definitely dead and he can carry on being crazy i mean that's a that is a a solid solid read the only reason we're able to kind of draw that is because look where this is placed in the movie. They give you Norman Bates's biological mother in the last three minutes of the movie. Oh. There's no like hinting at lips on the phone and it's an old lady's mouth or anything like that. It's just, hiya, Norman's got a biological mother that gave him up as a child and she's back. And then you've got three minutes to reconcile. It's sort of hinted. She says that she's my real mother or whatever when 
he's talking to this True. woman on the phone. But it's buried in so much crazy talk yeah, that you kind of just think this is Norman just going off on one. No, Love it. Love it. What a, what a mic drop. Here's his real mother. Fuck. The movie's <laughs> over. Like, what? What just happened? Phenomenal. So based on Psycho 2, with all of this in mind, are you taking a drive back to the Bates Motel for Psycho 3? Try and stop me. I can't wait. I've got a boot full of poppers and I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> I'm, I'm Bates bound and I know how to party. Yeah, I think three looks great in light of this. Even if it's not as good as two, we're in a new world. That There's no rules and everything is exciting. Every single new twist and turn. The fact that we've got Anthony Hopkins back in the role. Hopkins? Uh, and a, and a complete... <laughs> We've got Andy Hopkins back in the rock. He's back as Norman Bates. <laughs> Hannibal Lecter <laughs> makes an appearance. It's actually, yeah, Norman Bates versus Hannibal Lecter. It's another sci-fi movie. The showdown. Yeah. Mega Bates versus, versus. But I think what's exciting about knowing that three and four exist is that we're in completely uncharted territory. But we've got a, such a strong blueprint in that two is a, an escalation and a departure from one. So we're in we're in fun town and nothing can really go wrong. It's all bonus material at this point. Absolutely. I would agree with you and your estimation on legacy sequels, specifically about this. You can still take Psycho, the original, as its own self-contained entity if you want to. Or mm. you can enjoy your life and also experience the sequels. Yeah. So yeah, Psycho 2. Psycho two thumbs up. Psycho two thumbs up your butt with poppers. What a movie. What a lot of fun. Uh, it, it keeps giving the more that you think about it. And I think it keeps giving uh, probably on subsequent rewatches. Having only watched it once, I enjoyed every second. But the more time I've spent in my head going back to that movie, the more fun I've had, uh, you know, just infinitely. I think it, it's a really brave movie. It's a really clever movie. And it is a really tragic, sad piece of horror history that um you know ticks all my boxes personally cool so i guess with that we'll say see you later we're checking out of the base motel we are checking out someone in the shower from the next room through the peephole at the Bates motel that's where you'll find us thank you very much for listening this has been final transmission good night jamie good night sam